Is immersed, immersed, the podcast, the podcast in book. In book. We are delighted, we are delighted to, have to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, McCann, and Bart Plantinga for Morrow Sound, Vermont, and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. This is Charlie Morrow for Immerse. Sound, light, space. Imagine that you are floating high above the earth in deep space, looking out on the universe. Ian McLennan is a pioneer in the development of planetariums, museums, science centers, and other high-content public attractions. Based in Vancouver, Canada, he has shepherded attractions from the days before IMAX to international fairs to today's immersive projects. He's also a music lover, and a lover of his daily walks during which he captures special moments in his photographs. I met him through Dan Nafis at Immersa in Denver when he was being honored for his life's work in the field of planetariums, science domes, and immersive environments. I'm, I'm doing well. I've got a little bit of a cold. I brought that back from Arizona, but um, I'm coping all right. I'm glad to hear that. Well, it's been a long time since we've chatted. And I'm... So, um, you wanted to uh, talk a little bit about um, <laughs> the the journey that I've uh, I've been on. That would be wonderful because yeah. I'm I'm an admirer of your journey, and uh, I thought that you've been a, a visionary out of deep personal interest. That things have happened uh, in your wow. life that set your direction. Yeah. Well, it's uh, the feeling is mutual, and and I, I I think we should be exploring each other's background a little bit more. Well, uh, we can we can start a little bit with with what I'm doing now, uh, because that uh, you're germane, I think, to the the general topic. The, the main project that I'm working on is the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, and that started uh, about. about three years ago when they were fishing around and looking uh, they, they thought that they should build a planetarium to complement the uh, visitor experience at the uh, observatory and uh, of course I'm well known as a planetarium consultant and so they, they got in touch with me and uh, I put a small team together to look at what their uh, needs were uh, we wound up doing a master plan for their visitor experience a 
if you back up a little bit, back up 125 years, the original donor of the Lowell Observatory was Percival Lowell. I don't know if you know anything about his story. He was a, a businessman, very successful businessman in Massachusetts. And um, he, uh, he was fascinated by the prospect of life on Mars. And uh, when Mars was having a close opposition to the Earth in 1896, he wanted to build a big observatory to observe uh, Mars. And, and he wanted to build the largest telescope in the world. And uh, he was fascinated in particular by the canal, the, the so-called canals on Mars. And he thought that they were uh, made by intelligent beings. So he set up this gigantic telescope in Flagstaff, Arizona. And there's a whole story behind that, but be that as it may, when it, and he built this gigantic telescope, but when he bequeathed it for future generations, when he was near his end, he dictated that uh, the observatory forever would do leading edge astronomical research and public education in astronomy. And every director since then has respected that duality of purpose, the two pillars. So um, it is one of the leading astronomical observatories. It's where Pluto was discovered. It's where evidence of the expanding universe was first detected. It's a place where all, most of the famous astronomers in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s worked. But over time, as lights have encroached and as the space telescopes and the big telescopes in Hawaii and others replaced the, these uh, medium-sized telescopes, the, the research functions have been compromised. And so they're interested in upping their game in terms of public education. And that's happening now at Palomar Observatory in Mount Wilson, at Lake Observatory, at Yerkes Observatory, all of these major observatories. And I was just in Japan, the, 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 the Kiso Observatory is trying try to do the same thing. In England, uh, the Royal Observatory at Greenwich and, and in Edinburgh, they're all in the same predicament. They all want to up their game in public education. So I've, I've been in quite intimately involved in developing a strategy for, for that. And then it started with this Lowell Observatory. We came up with the notion that they didn't need a planetarium, but if they had a, an immersive theater that had a, a series of wide screens and then an overhead circular screen that we built planetarium capability into all of that, then, uh, then that would give us the benefit of panoramic views, which would uh, dovetail nicely with the Arizona skyline and uh, Arizona cultural history and everything else. And uh, then you don't have the large overhead screen, which you could use for sky effects and so forth. So you have the benefits of a planetarium without being locked into a planetarium format. So that's taken us in, in some new directions, as you can imagine. And, and many people now are looking at Lowell Observatory and saying, hey, that's an interesting model. And so <laughs> that's creating all, all kinds of interest among all of these other research observatories, uh, mainly in the United States, but elsewhere as well. well that's, that's a fascinating story. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. It seems like it potentially a sea change for uh, planetariums in the future. Uh, yes, I think it is, and particularly observatories that uh, have had an important role to play in the past in terms of research and are looking for new life and a new purpose. I think what we've done is come up with a formula that uh, works because they, they can still do some research
research programs and research related to education for the next, you know, STEM group of people coming along. But the, the emphasis is a little bit more on the public education rather than the pure astronomical research. And, and that leaves you know the, the the big telescopes on Canary Islands and then Chile and on in Hawaii and then the space telescopes, of course, which is the four main uh, areas where research is still going on and uh, big astronomy. That's covered very adequately, and then these other older places can be repurposed into educational uh, facilities. And then you've got the the twin aspects of the human history, the story of the development of astronomy, and the and in some cases the architecture of these wonderful old places as well, in landscaping and <laughs> many other aspects that really make them quite wonderful places to visit. So you, that, that opens up some interesting possibilities for uh, the educational side. Oh, thank you. I um, imagine that they have a kind of ongoing sense of being a place to go in order to visit the world beyond. And the immersive aspect of these new installations, I think, must be a little different. How do you craft that? Well, um, I was thinking about that in relation to your your second question, and um, it took me all the way back to Edmonton, where I started my career. And, um, and my original was career was in the broadcasting business. I was in radio and television. And I was a television producer, mainly on the news end of things. But at the same time, I, I remember always being frustrated that we were working with a, a very limited box <laughs> in terms of the image. And I don't think I thought it through at the time. In fact, I know I didn't think it through at the time. But I was always frustrated about the fact that uh, everything we produced, you had to see through this rectangular small window and, and with bad color. And, and in the early days, it wasn't even color. And then I was part of a group that promoted the uh, idea of building a planetarium in Edmonton to commemorate the Queen's visit in 1960. And I had never been in a planetarium. I had, <laughs> uh, but I liked the idea of one. I had a vague notion of what they would be like and so forth. A few of the older members of the Astronomical Society uh, had been in, you know, in places like the Adler Planetarium or the Hayden in New York. So they knew a little bit more about uh, what to expect. But I, uh, I was in the news business, I was in the television and radio business, and I had a, a little bit of a, a bullhorn, a platform to help promote the idea of this building, this planetarium to commemorate the Queen's visit. And that turned out to be the successful project. There were many projects that were considered to commemorate her visit, but the planetarium was built. And a couple of weeks before the opening of the planetarium, I was at a reception and the mayor of Edmonton was at the reception and he came up to me and he said, we've decided you we, you should be the planetarium director. I was flummoxed because it, you know, it just hadn't occurred to me at all. I was doing this on a strictly volunteer basis. I was president of the astronomical society but just as an amateur astronomer but I, there I was they gave me the proverbial offer I couldn't refuse and and so there I was a couple of weeks before the opening of this thing and it did turn out to be a bigger deal we, we thought we were just going to be able to operate this thing on a volunteer basis and uh, weekends and so forth 
But the, the public interest was so high and there was the business of scheduling and promotion and selling tickets and uh, hiring people and they just figured we've, we've got to gear up and, and hi hire somebody to run this thing. And so I hired a, a, a show team to put the first show together and I can remember, this goes back to your question about the immersiveness, I can remember sitting under the dome and by this time the, the planetarium had been built, we made all kinds of mistakes because we didn't know what we were doing, but we at least built this uh, fine little planetarium. I remember sitting under that great big dome, and it, it is a small dome by comparison to a lot of planetariums, but again, I was comparing it to the box of the TV set that uh, I had been producing for up to that point, and I thought to myself, wow, I, I get to produce stuff for this great big dome. That was the first time that I realized that we were going to be able to take audiences and immerse them in the universe, in the, take them on a journey and surround them with the, the mystery and the beauty of the universe. And maybe a month or so after the opening and the dust had settled, I ran into the mayor at another reception. It was a small city at that time. It's a big city now. And uh, I said, you know, I've never been in a real planetarium. Don't know how they do it in New York or Chicago or any of this. And he said, oh, you better go and find out how it's done. And so I went to New York and I went to Chicago and a couple of other places. And I found that they were just doing lectures in the dark. We were doing real shows, in uh, real immersive shows in Edmonton. And largely because none of us knew what we didn't know. We, we invented this, <laughs> this thing from scratch. And I was completely frustrated. I phoned back to Edmonton and said, I, I haven't learned anything here. And I wound up going to a couple of conferences and I made some noise and I got some notoriety. And then eventually the people in Rochester, New York, who got a, a windfall, uh, the museum got a big donation to build a planetarium. And this is five years after we had opened the Queen Elizabeth Planetarium in Edmonton. They came out in the local, in the Kodak Learjet to see what uh, what I was doing in, in Edmonton because it, it got a fair bit of attention at the time. And they hired me on the spot to build the Strasbourg Planetarium from the ground up in, in uh, Rochester, New York. And that that's when we had, by that time, I'd learned a lot and developed a lot of the ideas about immersive. And we had an opportunity with a lot of money, more money than I had ever dreamed I would uh, be able to spend in Edmonton uh, because the board, uh, you know, Kodak was in Rochester and Bausch and Mom and Xerox and uh, all the big, big companies were there. So the, the, the planetarium was well supported and uh, anything they anything we wanted to do they they let us do and and we, we built a, a planetarium that, that became the gold standard for a couple of generations but that was that was where we took the immersiveness just to the next generation altogether because we developed all sky projection systems we developed the concept of an atmospherium as well as a planetarium where we could show the daytime sky which is half the sky after all and, and is sometimes just as interesting as the night sky. We uh, immersed the, the dome in cultural references, of wh whether it had to do with native astronomy or ancient Greek or uh, other astronomy or space images. And of course, that was around the, the beginning of the space age as well. So the fortuitous timing 
was was just absolutely amazing. So um, all of that kind of formulated my experience base and and informed how I approached all these uh, subsequent projects because uh, I, I could see that when you surround people with imagery and, and sound rather than having them look at something through a window, which is fine if, if it's a, a story where that works. But if you're looking at something that adds to the experiential aspect of things, domes and, and other types of immersive projection and now VR and other experiments like that are certainly the way to go. And I've been interested in experimenting with that ever since. Well, thank you for sharing that remarkable story. I, uh, I was unaware of how you got bit. My father <laughs> once said to me that he thought I had been vaccinated by a phonograph needle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Phonograph needle, that, that's a good one, yeah. But uh, I love the story, and uh, I, I wondered if you could comment on how you understand immersivity now that you've spent your life working on it. Is it one thing? Is it many things? What is your view? Well, I, th I think it's many things, and I think it's open-ended in terms of the possibilities, mainly because if you look at what has happened, say, with the Immersa movement, where there was a small group of people who weren't frustrated, but they weren't satisfied with the notion that these dome theaters should only be educational facilities. They had a wider angle view, and so that opened up the possibilities for cultural expression or for artistic expression or or for experiments with the human interaction with the imagery and sound and so And I think that just led us to a place where everything is just completely open-ended. I mean, I just don't see any limitation whatsoever to what the possibilities are. And uh, they can range from just at the one end of the spectrum, just giving people a good positive experience, all the way to profound insights based on actual knowledge transfer that can happen in a dome environment, especially when you combine the, the dome environment or immersiveness of other kinds with data visualization. That has just opened up so many exciting areas uh, because if you stop to think of the fact that anything at all that we are working on as a species can be reduced to data and then data can be visualized. And so extrapolating that it just opens up limitless, just infinite possibilities. And I think uh, we're just at the cusp of exploring what uh, what those possibilities are. When you think about going into the nano world or into the micro world uh, at one end of the spectrum or going out to the extremities of the known universe at, at the other end, and everything in between, including exploring, you know, traveling through our own DNA or traveling through the human body or traveling through the brain. And possibly I can even see a loop kind of situation where we could have a visualization of the activity in a human brain and, and have that being explored in real time on, on a dome or some other immersive environment and uh, that gives you kind of this closed loop and uh, ultimately i suppose there will be a, a human computer interface thing which is kind of scary in a way it opens up fascinating and amazing possibilities but also with tremendous dangers as well well thank you so much for sharing your story i have been uh, delighted to 
travel through your history and your present and your vision for the future. So thank you so much for being part of this. And um, are you in a position to come to uh, Immersa and IPS meet in Edmonton? Uh, no, I am. I've been on the program committee. I'm, I'm going to do a special workshop because my feeling was that in order to develop immersive literacy, that we should include the, um, the docent staff. And so, because uh, they spread out in the community. Uh, here in Helsinki, the Hildeka uh, uh, Museum has a huge staff that welcomes people and shows them experiments. And um, I thought that science museum aspect of, um, of, of interface with the visitors is, uh, is very inspiring. So I'm looking for a way to grow that into the immersive production education. Our sound system has been integrated with uh, planetarium systems and hopefully uh, ENS and I are doing a deal or will be one of the options for, for planetarium sound. Oh, it's great. Integrated systems and particularly for an LED screen, a factor with 360 sound makes a, it's a nice package. Have you seen the uh, LED uh, dome screen yet? I haven't. Have you? No. no it's no. only, there's one in China. I mean, I've seen LED yeah. surfaces, so I know, I know what it does on a smaller scale. I've seen them. Yeah. But the big one must be amazing. It'll be interesting to see if that uh, if that uh, works and if it uh, holds up. Uh, it, it would be unforgiving if there was any problem with the, you know, in, in terms of uh, feeding images to uh, any particular part of the dome, but it'll be interesting to see if they're able to pull that off for sure. Well, that's uh, that's fascinating, yeah. And I know Bill Chomick is working with ENS right now on the architecture of some uh, new domes. So uh, I don't know whether you know him, don't you? No, I don't know him. Maybe I, I definitely should. He's an architect based in Calgary, and he's done 23 planetariums, actually. He's uh, the world expert as far as architect. Well, there are two architects who can call themselves real experts. One, one is uh, Tim Barry and the other is Bill Chomick. Uh, Tim Barry is in Texas and uh, Bill is in Calgary. Well, thank you for today. Okay, Charlie, good to talk with you and, and we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch and uh, this is a good way of doing it. I think it's an excellent way. Then. We'll talk, talk to you again. You. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Charlie. Mankind has reached for the stars and found them within his grasp. Thank you. This is Immerse, the podcast and book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Immerse. Immerse. An empty shell fall back into the sea. Five, four, 